My fellow Americans, welcome to The Celluloid President, a podcast about the American presidents as they are depicted in the movies. Today's movie is 2017's Darkest Hour, which does not feature a president at all, but is about Winston Churchill. Gary Holmes, and I'm here with Jim Robinson, who's learning to smoke cigars and drink brown liquor. Jim, tell the people why we are discussing a movie about a British prime minister. Well, for the record, Gary, um, he lived until age 90, so maybe there's something to be said for the brown liquor and the cigars. Um, He was also half American, and uh, his mother was an American, and he was one of the few people in history to be made an honorary American citizen. So those, by the way, of feeble excuses, but he was a great leader. And he was, he was one of the most remarkable leaders of the 20th century. And a lot of our podcasts are going to be discussing leadership at the highest levels and particularly leadership in crisis situations. And that's really what Darkest Hour is all about, isn't it? Yeah, sure is. So you and I are um, almost exactly the same age, and I bet we became aware of Churchill at the same time. Um, Let's talk about for a minute what your relationship to Churchill was when you heard about him, when you learned about him, what you thought about him throughout your life. Well, I can't I can't uh, say that I've been, uh, you know, one of these Churchill groupies, uh, like a lot of friends that I've known have been where they've follow everything and all the they've read all the biographies read his own writings you know they know all the folklore but my first memory of him is when he died uh, we i think you and i were just about to turn 11 sorry to give it away and when he died in january of 1965 and um his funeral was televised it was at the time the largest worldwide television audience in history And I don't remember actually watching the funeral, but I remember images of it, you know, compared to, say, the JFK funeral, where I specifically remember being glued to the TV set with my family. So the first memory of Churchill for me was his death at age 90 in January of 1965. And then over the years, just through osmosis, um, he entered the popular culture and the things we learn in school in so many ways. I remember him being um, uh, imitated on Hogan's Heroes, one of my favorite TV shows from the 60s. There's a great album by the Kinks called Arthur or the Decline and Fall of the the, uh, British Empire that was released in 1969. And there's actually a song on there called Mr. Churchill Says, which uses some of the speeches that uh, we hear in this movie um, as the lyrics of a song. Not totally complimentary, by the way, but probably the biggest impact of Churchill for someone like myself and maybe for you, too, in our careers as speechwriters uh, for business and for politicians is has has there ever been anyone except for maybe Lincoln who's got more great quotes to use in speeches. Now, God knows if they really said all these things, there's been disputes, but with Churchill, There's just so many classic quotes that I've dusted off and stuck in speeches time and time again and writing for business. The obvious one is when he said, some see private enterprise as a predatory tiger to be shot, others as a cow to be milked, but few are those who see it as the sturdy horse pulling the wagon. I mean, you write that for any CEO that's hired you and it's a gold star. And then there was, the never give in, never, never, never give in, which has been used for things ranging from is a nation going to survive to are we going to win this little league game, you know, on the on the ball field. And of course, democracy is the worst form of government known to man, except for all the others. So that's basically my relationship with Winston Churchill is what a great font of quotes for my speeches over the years. How about you? 
Yeah, my first memory is also when he died. I, I'm pretty sure that I did watch the funeral. Um, uh, I have, you know, how you make up these memories. Maybe they're real, maybe they're not. But I uh, I have a memory of watching it in the living room um, on the TV and like, oh, who is this guy? <laughs> I had never heard of him before. Um, a lot of um, what I've learned about him uh, as a as a kid was from watching shows about him on TV. Um and, um, you know, a lot of these were uh, political lessons on how he was correct about German militarism. Um, I have come to consider him the greatest hero of the 20th century, um, and I still do. I'm actually one of these uh, Churchill, not a Churchill groupie, like I have actually haven't read his books, but I've read quite a few of his biographies. Um, you know, he's just a, such a remarkable person. Um, you know, he was in the um in the public eye for uh for his entire life uh you know he f- became famous when he was captured by the boers during the boer war in the 1890s um and he was a member of the war cabinet he was a member of the cabinet in 1908 um he was the minister behind the gallipoli invasion which they refer to in the movie um he switched parties a couple times uh he was a best-selling author and he was a person that was hugely controversial over 50 years so um and then he culminates his career by basically arguably saving western civilization so um i i i'm 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 still a, a big fan um uh so let's before we get into the movie itself um i've i'm written a summary here and i'm just going to read it for you so for those of you who haven't seen the movie or haven't seen it recently, um, here's what it's all about. So it's May 1940, and in the opening thrust of World War II, the Germans are overrunning Europe. In Parliament, the members of the opposition Labour Party are on their feet, furiously denouncing the arch-appeaser Neville Chamberlain and demanding that he resign. Later that night at a cozy white-tie dinner, Chamberlain announces that he will indeed resign. He wants Lord Halifax, another appeaser to take his place. But Halifax declines. He doesn't think Labour will have him either and says there's only one alternative. Meanwhile, on the very day that he's about to be offered the top job, Churchill is breaking in a brand new secretary, a Miss Layton. He's so abrupt with her that she flees in tears. But as she's running out the door, a messenger from the palace hands her a telegram from the king. When she brings it in and learns that Churchill will be prime minister, she decides to stay. As watchers of the crown know, the way someone becomes prime minister is that the monarch, in this case, George VI, asks you in person to form a government in his or her name. George asks Churchill to do so reluctantly. Like most of the establishment, he's scared of Churchill, who's a bit of a wild man. Once Churchill finally becomes prime minister, things go from bad to worse. No one can stop the Germans. The British army of 300,000 soldiers is pushed back to Dunkirk and will soon be destroyed. The French are on the verge of collapse. Belgium, Holland, Norway, all fall. Lord Halifax wants to negotiate a peace deal with Hitler, which Churchill resists. But fatigued and broken down, he says he'll think about it. Somewhat surprisingly, the king shows up at Churchill's bedroom to tell him he will support whatever he decides. And they have a nice bonding moment. The king tells Churchill to listen to the people. So Churchill takes a ride on the tube where he conducts a small focus group. Everyone tells him to fight on and never, never, never give in. So he doesn't. He orders the evacuation of Dunkirk with small private craft and gives a rousing speech in parliament in which he promises that the British people will fight them on the beaches, fight them on the landing grounds, fight in the fields and on the streets and in the hills. They shall never surrender. Parliament erupts in cheers, and British policy is set. Britain will fight on alone. So, Jim, what I mean, what did you think about the movie itself as a cinematic experience overall? Did you like it? What did you like about it, and what did you dislike? Well, uh, my, my bottom line is um, I really liked it, um, and I would recommend it to anybody that's interested in 20th century history and World War II history. I mean, just to see some of these um, things we learned about in books, you know, acted out is, um, is worth the price of admission. 
it built it built on me as I went along. At the at the very outset, I was a little worried because I thought it was going to be, it, it was like a caricature, you know, his outrageous conduct and behavior and mannerisms. You know, before I really got into the character, it reminded me almost of a cartoonish kind of portrayal. But that didn't last long because as the movie went on and we got more toward the actual history of the time and in the events in London, as opposed to what he has for breakfast, um, I started to appreciate it more. So it's not a war film. In other words, there's not big battle scenes, you know, big expensive location shots. It really is the kind of movie that you can envision as a play, you know, being done on stage. And um, in that regard, it all revolves around Gary Oldman. And it's, it's a remarkable performance. Um, it's even more than remarkable to me when you look, when you think about his career and he's played everyone from Lee Harvey Oswald in JFK, a movie we'll be talking about at some point, uh, to Count Dracula. And um, so for him to play Winston Churchill, considerably older than Gary Oldman was at the time, and with all that makeup and silicone and whatever it was that made him look like it, it was a remarkable performance. So I really, I really enjoyed the film. The end was just down, the ending scenes were just downright moving. Yeah. The tube scene, the speech to his, I think it was the rump group of his ministers, and then to the entire parliament using Churchill's actual words. I mean, that was the real climax. It was very emotional, lump in the throat time. So um, overall, I really enjoyed the film. Um, and I'll, I'm anxious to hear what you thought. I've got a few downside notes, but I'll, I'll hold those in reserve for a minute. Okay, so I liked... Um... You know, I've seen the movie before. I, I know this is your first time seeing it. I saw it when it first came out. I saw it in the movie theater. And at the time, I was, um, I was, I had mixed feelings about it. It's like, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. Um, but when I watched it the second time, um, I liked it a lot more. I appreciated it more. I thought the acting was great. Um, I thought it did a good job of evoking his sense of history. Um, my heart in the beginning, my part was like, when they got those scenes of Hitler and the Germans marching across. I mean, I was really like, oh my God, I can't take it. Um, so um, I thought it was great. I, I, I liked the speeches. I thought those were the best parts of the movie. I liked, you're right. We were, you did more speech writing than I did, but I also did a lot of speech writing and I liked the process of that. Um, the speeches, I mean, they're, we've grown up with them. So it was great to see them all. I mean, the two, some of the most famous lines in oratory history uh, were in this movie. Um, so, but, um, you know, I tell you the thing that I didn't like, was the, yeah, so what, what, so what are your, what are your reservations? So, so the things that I would say were down notes, but not necessarily, you know, negatives. I thought the, um, I thought the scenes with Mrs. Churchill were kind of gratuitous. Um, I know the, there was probably an intent to, you know, humanize the situation to bring some of it beyond the realm of, you know, large world landscape statecraft. Uh, she did a fine job, but I just, I, I wasn't sure about the overall point of that. Um, the scenes with the secretary worked a little better because it was a way for Churchill to come face to face with the true cost of war, you know, with her is her brother, right, that died. Um, I thought the the scenes with the king were were fascinating, <clears throat> but I found his sudden transformation, at least to me it was sudden. Yeah. And maybe I had a from about to flee the country to saying right on, Winnie. Um yeah. Yeah. really explained. Um, it wasn't really developed or explained that well. And, and I thought the, um, the one thing that just irked me, although I don't have a solution for it, was when the date, a new date would roll up on screen with kind of a sound effect noise. It was kind of a hackneyed in a way. Um, <clears throat> so those would be sort of my downsides. I thought the best, in addition to Oldman, I thought... Um, 
Stephen Delane playing Lord Halifax was the second best actor. And the debates that he had with Churchill and with others um, were, were really well done. Um, Chamberlain was good. He's it was sort of a tragic figure. So he milked that part for the tragedy and pathos. I got it. cancer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> so those would be my those would be my downsides. There was a little bit of a um, done on the cheap quality to the film um, because, as I said, it was not a war film with big, big Spielberg battle scenes, um, and um, and. It, well, the most emotional part of the whole movie is the Dunkirk evacuation, which is amazing. I mean, it's a fantastic thing that happened. Um, and at, at the end, you see very cheesy uh, scene at the end where it's CGI or something. I don't know where I got all these boats coming out to rescue everyone. And um, you don't see the rescue, you just see the boats coming out and it's obviously fake. You can tell it's very yeah. cheap there. Yeah, I agree with that. So I thought, you know, I, I think other than the actors, salaries, probably the biggest expense for the film was the extras because <laughs> there was <laughs> lots of extras to fill, you know, assuming they were real people and not CGI. Um, but um, anyway, those would be my sort of complaints, if you will, about about it. Um, on the on the production side, yeah, I've got I've got some a few suspicions on the historical side, which we'll get to. Right. Um, you know, one of the I I didn't mind the um the the calendar thing, and I, and you know it was funny. It it adds putting those calendars there and having the time date flip um, adds to the sense of like this is a real historical document. Like it was almost like a documentary. Um, um, and the one artistic choice that I didn't care for was when he would be drive his, his uh, church would be driving through the streets and he'd look out the window and see people wearing these Hitler masks. I didn't understand what that was about at all. Um, um, and in general, this is, uh, this is a problem I have with a lot of history movies. It's a little bit of a dumbing down of a very complicated subject. Um, you know, it seemed to reduce this nationwide debate to four men, you know, Churchill, Chamberlain, Halifax, and the King. And, um, you know, it was much more complicated than that. I, I did a little, little I, I read these bios of of Churchill, so I went back and reread the section about this. And it's it was really fascinating what was going on. I mean, I, I, the, the books are so much more interesting than the movie. Um, you know, the when the movie starts you see everyone yelling at Chamberlain to resign, but what you, you don't see is that there has just this been this very dramatic um, vote where uh, 60 conservatives left, you know, voted no confidence in, um, in Chamberlain uh, to join the, the labor side. And it was, you know, something like that really doesn't happen. Um, and then this whole business about Chamberlain deciding to resign it's not something he just sort of decided for himself. I mean, he was kind of forced into it and there's a lot of back and forth. I mean, this went on for days with meetings after meetings after meetings. So anyway, it, it's, it's fine. You get the general gist of what happened. Um, but I, you know, I, it, it does feel a little dumbed down, even though there's a lot of talking in the movie, there's not, there's hardly any action at all. You know, we're, we're sort of edging our way into, into the history side of things. Well, and, yeah. So uh, let's talk about the the accuracy. What did you think about that? Well, I mean, it was a manipulative movie, and I mean, I mean that in a good, <clears throat> a yeah. good artistic way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, this is going to happen when a movie is about an isolated moment of of important decision making by a major historical figure. In other words, it's not a biopic where you get the full sweep of the man's life, the good, the, the bad and the ugly, the successes and the mistakes and all that. You get an isolated, you know, set of days and time and how he acted compared to how others acted. <clears throat> and it's almost easy to forget under that circumstance that the United Kingdom had already declared war on Germany 
by the time any of the scenes in this movie yeah. took place. Um, and it was England that declared war on Germany, not the other way around. Now, for damn good reason. But, and it was Chamberlain who was prime minister when the United Kingdom took the, what today we would consider an extraordinary step. In fact, we don't even do it anymore, which is to actually declare war on somebody. So a lot of stuff had happened. Chamberlain had already realized that he had made grievous errors in under, underestimating Hitler and in believing some of the promises. And by the way, Chamberlain was not alone in this. Almost everybody, but not Churchill to his credit, but a major, probably a majority of leaders. Roosevelt, White House, put out a praiseworthy statement when, when um, Chamberlain left Munich with the appeasement document. Um, it was not that much of an outlying, outrageous viewpoint to try to make some peace and agreement with Hitler. And Chamberlain did. He was grievously wrong. Churchill was right. But nonetheless, since we see just an isolated moment in time, we don't get that fuller picture. So I think this is, yeah, I know you, you were right. Although I, I, I've never been able to stand Chamberlain. I mean, I've been, the propaganda over the years has totally turned me against him. And, you know, I just, I can't stand the guy, but um, yeah, in um, uh, but that, but we we actually have a question that we're going to have to wrestle with when we go forward with these things. It's like, how much are we going to quibble about invented scenes? Um, and there's quite a few things in this movie that were did not for all the documentary type um, uh, discussion and look at uh, look. Um, they they in, in, invented quite a few things which we can get into. Um, but do we judge the movie on technical accuracy versus emotional and big pink, big picture truth? Um, I think from a big picture perspective, this is probably accurate. I mean, these things did happen. I mean, um, a lot of the dialogue from here is pulled from Churchill's biographies. And I, this, this book that I, this biography that I was reading, I mean, I, I, I recognize some of the actual language, um, um, so he, when they did the book, they, they, uh, when they did the movie, they relied on the, the documentary language, uh, documentary, um, um, record, but, um, but they still invented a bunch of stuff. Yeah, um, well, my, my favorite scene is probably the, the most fictitious, which is right. in the subway and in the London tube. Right. Um, exactly. by all accounts, right. the things that I read it did not actually happen. And the, the writer's defense was, well, he did get around right. mixed with the public during the war. And I remember vividly pictures of him touring rubble and seeing average citizens. But the actual scene of him fumbling for the fare for the tube and going into the tube and having a kind of a penultimate, you know, coming to Jesus with average people, um, by everything I understand, did not happen. That's and ridiculous. Was, I mean, it's all—it's totally preposterous that that would have happened. And it's an absolutely great scene. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I was going to say that. I was also going to say that was my favorite scene. Yeah. So, so, but it does get to a larger truth, and we're going to find this in other movies. I mean, you know, the Nixon biopic comes to mind, where there's a disclaimer slate before the opening credits where Oliver Stone basically admits, yeah, some things are invented. And indeed in that movie, some of this, my favorite scenes uh, didn't actually happen, but they do elicit a true depiction of events and a true depiction of the character of the lead character of Churchill or Nixon or whoever the movie's about. So yeah, I think that's, <clears throat> I think we need to point these things out and especially if younger people or if the movie's being shown in history classes. But I basically trust most history teachers to note that when Hollywood takes on a subject, there's going to be some things that aren't literally accurate, but is, the, is its take on history accurate? And I think those are sort of two different things. Yeah. So... Um... 
some of the other things that did not happen that are, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just, I don't know if we're picking nits here, but I'll pick the nits anyway. Um, you know, obviously the king did not come to Churchill's bedroom to, you know, and I'm with you. I mean, I thought that was a very, uh, the way that switched from, uh, you know, him not liking Churchill to um, all of a sudden coming and being, you know, having that bonding moment um, was unexpected. It was surprising because it was so unrealistic, but, um, you know, uh, Miss Layton, um, you know, didn't start working from him. That character, that, that, the, the, the character there, she did not work for him, um, at this period. Um, and she didn't have a brother that died. Um, and so she actually is a person, but she didn't, she worked for him like a year, a year later. Um, you know, the, they didn't work in the underground, uh, war room, uh, war rooms. Yeah. By the way, have you ever gone to visit? The, did you ever go to London and go to those visits? Those places. I have, and I recommend it to anybody. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's yeah. fascinating. It's a fat. I looked it up to make sure the tours are still, yeah, you know, available given you know security and COVID and all that. And yes, uh, they are. But I did that many years ago, and it's a very evocative experience, and it's certainly something worth doing. But there was um, no but, reason for them to be down there, right? Because there were, the, you know, the bombs hadn't started falling yet. So that's right. a that's a dramatic. But anyway, that's a that's a nit. I guess, I guess it does raise the your anxiety though to you know having those strange um, surroundings. Um, you well, know, the apparently there wasn't about, all that. Go ahead. Well, the other thing about the war rooms is it's so quaint nowadays. Oh yeah, because those war rooms and Hitler's bunker would have, offer absolutely zero protection in any war nowadays. Yeah, right. Um, you know, those discussions in the war cabinet are, um, um, you know, we're not as, wasn't as much yelling um, as, you know, Her Churchill didn't really come close to caving in. Like, you know, he's like, he's almost a zombie at one point. He's like, yeah, I'm going to do it, uh, uh, whatever. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that really happened. I, I don't, as far as I can tell, he didn't really almost um, cave in on the negotiations. Um, no one heard the speech on the radio because those the church the speech in the, at the end there, which is so inspiring. Um, people would have read about it in the newspaper the next day. Um, this whole business about Chamberlain having this, you know, handkerchief that he's like mopping his brow with to decide whether or not he is, you know. He was not popular that popular. Um, he wasn't controlling whether the crowd, whether the, the conservatives were going to uh, cheer or not. I didn't like that. Um, and, but the other thing that's really kind of missing from this is the whole um, Clement, at, you know, the it leaves labor completely out of the picture. Uh, they were in the war cabinet, but you never hear them talking or or um, or participating in the discussions or anything. And it's like the the backbenchers in general, but labor in particular, are just not represented. So that's probably the biggest uh, distortion, if even beyond the nitpicks. Yeah, and he probably Churchill probably was closer to and respected Clement Attlee more than some of the, the most of the figures on you know his side of the of the chamber. And I was reading about about the Churchill funeral. And uh, Attlee was still alive and um, very enfeebled, but attended and was a pallbearer and stumbled going up the steps, almost causing the casket to drop. <laughs> so he, he was very, very close, very moved by Churchill. They kept in touch. But yeah, you're right. Labor gets short shrift, you know, in this film. What do you think... Um... The filmmaker is trying to uh, accomplish. Um, what do you think he's up to? Well, there are several things that I'd like to think he was trying to accomplish. Whether he was or not, I don't know enough about this, this filmmaker. But one thing that came through is you can be a great leader and literally save a nation or civilization and still have big flaws. Right. Personal excesses, big political incorrectnesses, 
things that today would get you bounced out of politics for good, uh, that it's okay. It's okay. And maybe we should be a little more forgiving of the faults and foibles of our various leaders, whatever side of the aisle they're on, and look at the bigger picture of as to what are their leadership skills and how do they perform in the clutch. Yeah, I think he's saying that too. Um, also, I, I read uh, that he is a, um, he describes himself as a libertarian, uh, which I wonder is a, um, a polite way of saying conservative, you know? Um, and it's an acceptable way. Acceptable no. way, yeah. Um, I, I, it seems to me he's trying to evoke the glory days of Britain um, when it stood up to tyranny and, and, uh, uh, you know, saved civilization. Um, this movie came out right after the Brexit vote. Um, and at a time when England is, was trying to uh, figure out its place in the world. And a, and a movie like this implies that there's something special deep within the Brit British character that allows it to go its own way. So I don't know if it was, you know, I don't know Joe Wright at all. I don't know anything about him, but I, you know, this whole idea that we're a special people, we can do, you know, like something core within us, the small Britain, uh, you know, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, I, I think he's, it's said so the subtext is that, um, you know, it's a, it's a propaganda movie really for, for, for Britain. And we were glorious then we can be glorious again. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really fair point. I hadn't thought of that. Um, the other interesting thing that's brought in, and it's not quite clear where the filmmaker lands, is the um, is disinformation okay in wartime? Right. Yeah. And this, of course, is a hot issue now, with the the back and forth on both sides of the Ukraine issue. Right. Right. Uh, is it okay? Is it justified in the name of instilling confidence of building support for an all-out nation-saving effort uh, to lie? or to at least put a gloss on things. And uh, Hitler, or Hitler, <laughs> Churchill has shown doing that, uh, Hitler did it all the time, <laughs> Churchill has shown doing that. Um, but did you get a sense of what the verdict was on whether it, the movie- Well, I think, I, I think that the movie saying, um, uh, don't, lie um I, I think that in the end churchill does it for a while but for, only for a couple of days um but eventually you know i think this is where he's flattering the audience right it's like you guys can all take it you know churchill tells them you tells you the hard truths um you know he finally did you know that whole speech is like this is going to be tough um and he tells all the disasters yeah, yeah, you're going to meet the enemy in your streets. Right, right. I mean, that sounds horrifying. Yeah. Um, but um, so I, I think in the end, <clears throat> he comes down against um, uh, at least l keeping them in the dark. And apparently Churchill was during the buildup, uh, the German buildup, uh, he was arguing against what Chamberlain and, and Stanley Baldwin before him were doing, which was... Um, playing down the German threat. And he was saying, he, he was saying at the time that British people can take this. I mean, you got to go to them and, and make the case to them. And, and they didn't think that, that they could because, you know, everyone was so, so still broken down from what happened during world war one. The other thing that strikes me about this movie is um, it shows that the divisions between the ruling class and the regular people are very clear. And yet that's not a problem. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, you've got those, total upper class people guys that have been running this show for centuries and the people down below they're like yeah whatever i mean um i uh it's almost like the natural order of things as long as the rulers listen to the people and you know and it's interesting that the king who's at the very top is the one who most understands that you've got a i mean he's the one that counsels churchill to listen to the people which i'm sure um Churchill didn't really need um, to be told to do so. Yeah. yeah, I think that's I think that's true. And also, if in reading about the history, um, there was quite a contingent of it's too strong to say that there were Hitler and Nazi lovers, 
but a contingent of people that thought that there was some kind of a bond with Germany mm-hmm. that didn't exist with the rest of Europe, you know, between the U between England and Germans. And, um, and I think that was, you know, there was a contingent mainly of upper class mm-hmm. British that thought that, um, there was some of that in the United States. Uh, first of all, we had a lot of quite a number of German Americans living in the United States at the outbreak of the war. There was some of that in the U.S. too, but our our um, reluctance, I think, dealt more with the, just our historical isolationism more than any kind of affinity, if you will, with gee, maybe you know what Hitler's trying to do is not so bad. Or, you know, the old, he made the trains run on time kind of nods to him. Um, I did want to bring up, since this is a podcast about presidents. Yeah. um, An American president does appear. Yeah, right. Voluntarily in this movie. And it's kind of an embarrassing, but probably understandable and historically accurate episode. Uh, Do you remember that scene? Well, I remember it very well. You got Franklin Roosevelt comes on there and he's all cheerful and, you know, a good, 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 um, a good imitation, I thought. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, it's really embarrassing because I think it probably is accurate. And, you know, supposedly Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, Roosevelt had a fantastic relationship. Um, but um, uh so yeah, it's a yeah, it is embarrassing for us. This whole idea about well, um, you bring the horses that get you, you know we can't give you this material, but we um, you know if you can we'll bring it up to the border up to Canada and you have to bring these horses over to get it. I mean that sounds kind of ridiculous, right? But it was um, I know that Roosevelt and by the way he signed the law that in, you know prohibited. Yeah, you know the neutrality act, but you know I understand all a lot of those sentiments, and um, and he was looking for workarounds definitely yeah. um, to the law that restricted him from supplying the British. He very much wanted to do that, um, and the Len the Len Lease scheme that they eventually settled on. Um, which was deeply opposed by, for example, Ambassador Kennedy, <laughs> Americans. Um, and um, he did try to work that out, but his appearance, given what Churchill was facing, and then you're right, speaking of sort of that upper co- class, twitty kind of, you know, cheerio voice of Roosevelt on the phone, um, trying to say, keep your British chin up. Winston, you know, and um, it, it it did come across as ridiculous, but maybe unfairly so. Yeah, I, I think so, too, considering how Churchill, I mean, Roosevelt was trying to help Churchill and um, and with a runner uh, with the end run. So I, I agree with you. I thought it was it was pretty unfair. Um, uh, I, but the British have a way of. Um, portraying American presidents as, you know, kind of buffoons in general. I mean, there's a movie that I literally hate and we will never discuss here, uh, Love Actually, um, where, um, you know, uh, the Brit- the American president comes to visit England and um, he's a buffoon and a womanizer and he hits on the secretary, you know, uh, uh, um the, the prime minister secretary. So, um, you know, I don't think they, and if you've ever watched, I know you don't watch the crown, but it's the same thing. They always show the American presidents as, um, as kind of idiots. Um, so I, I guess it's not surprising. Well, if this movie broadened out the look at Churchill's war- wartime leadership, yeah, um, as I was referencing before, it would not all be slammed up. Right. Right. A lot of his subsequent, actions reactions delaying tactics priorities uh, are very much subject to to questioning um he talked everyone to death 
Um, Eisenhower ended up being the one that was assigned to go uh, up to Checkers to listen to all night Churchill uh, monologues, um, booze infused. <sighs> and um, he really didn't want D-Day to happen. If you really read the full record and read between the lines, um, he was he was satisfied with air power you know, just beating the Germans into submission. Much was much more concerned about preserving elements of the British Empire. That was his priority, especially, you know, through the Mediterranean and protecting the British interests in the Middle East. And so, um, again, this movie isolates an episode in which Churchill was a legitimate hero, absolute hero, was absolutely right with his protagonist antagonist being wrong, but the full picture is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is totally hero worship. Well, you, you, there were some, you talked about some of the flaws they show, but they're minor flaws really considered. And they're almost like, well, I mean, personal, like he yells at the secretary and he maybe drinks too much. And, um, um, but those are not as bad a flaws as the strategic mistakes he made during the prosecution of the war. Yeah. yeah. So, but the thing is, it's like, and I think that you and I appreciate this because, um, it's the power of the words, the speeches that is his greatest leadership, um, um, capacity because, um, I mean, I think we all we both believe in persuasion um, being what what leadership is all about. It's not really I mean, you have to be right on the facts, but then but more important than that, um, you have to be able to persuade people to do it. And um, again, um, uh, you know, not to get into public, but this is what Zelensky has accomplished in, in Ukraine is just through um you know he he roused his people to stand up in a way that um that like churchill did and um so um well let's see so what let's what what are your so we just talked about language what are, what do you think are the what are your favorite uh best lines in the movie well you can't beat the, the lines that were actually real in the speeches and, and yeah the right yeah right so to me uh, to me, that's a slam dunk. Right. I mean, you just can't beat it. Right. <laughs> I mean, and no one has, probably right. maybe in human history. I'm with you on that. Um, he's um, He was just a master at it. And he did not have the, you know, the full weight of the electronics, as you mentioned. The speech wasn't even broadcast. Um, and... Um, I guess some of the speeches he would record later and they would get released. But I believe that the one to Parliament wasn't until maybe after the war. I, yeah, and sure. I think I think I read that it was that that speech was recorded in 1949, which is, yeah. you know, almost 10 years later. So it's always interesting to me how a leader or celebrity, you know, we've talked in the past a lot about Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. You know, how do these people before the age of all the electronics and television and radio existed. Um, but how do these people become iconic figures in the popular imagination without all the aids that exist nowadays for people to do that? Well, Churchill had the radio, um, and uh, but newspapers, I think, were the social media of the day, right? Um, you know, people would read three or four newspapers and they'd come out in the morning, they'd come out in the afternoon. So, um, but you're, I agree with you. It just seems impossible to, well, we've talked about it with the Beatles. Like how did the Beatles become so world famous in just a snap of a finger? I, I just, it happens, I guess. Right. Or if you want to even go back further to Martin Luther, I mean, how did he, in in the 1500s change um the world uh just how did all that circulate um you know through you know because through some printed pamphlets and stuff so i don't know it's interesting how um people can change the world just through their their own words so right. 
I, I, some of the, some of my, I, so yes, I agree with the speeches are the best. I thought my favorite line aside from the speeches was the very last line where someone asks, um, um, Halifax, um, what just happened? And he says he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Yes, that was that, a great one. That's a great, and, and the other, other favorite lines, I think are actually church, you know, I, I, I believe they are both, uh, Churchill quotes, um, have been attributed to him. Um, uh, you can't, you cannot not negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. And, um, and something he said about, uh, Clement Attlee, um, He's a sheep in sheep's clothing. So <laughs> <laughs> let it come down. F um, favorite scenes? Well, um, I, as I mentioned, the, the one in the tube yeah. was the favorite. And then I, yeah, I actually love the scene, the sort of warm-up speech before the parliamentary scene. Now, who was that before his broader group of ministers? Who was that before? Do you know what I'm so that, I, as I understood it, that was, um, so he had, there was the, there was a cabinet and I guess a sub cabinet and then the war cabinet, the war cabinet was these five people. Um, and, but I think that the group that he was talking to was like the sub cabinet of like the, like the senior, yeah, the, basically the other ministers who were not at the top, but, but they were not the full parliament. So they were, Yeah. Well, that was really good, and with his speech, and then with the close-ups of several of the figures saying "never," right? And then I thought was, the word you know, "never" appears all over the place, right? Yeah. So those were those were my favorite scenes. As I mentioned, I thought the um, I struggled a little bit with the Lady Churchill scenes, uh, not because they were bad, but because you know, sort of a "what's the point" reaction. I, yeah. I I snickered at the scene of his um, when he was popping champagne upon moving into number ten, and he had his I guess his children, and there was a very dismissive sort of like look on his son's face, you know, <laughs> at one very fleeting moment, you know, about you know how am I ever going to live up to this to my father, you know, like <laughs> um, I um. Um, I don't know what it says about me, but my favorite scenes were the ones that were completely manufactured and false. Um, so like uh, the Hollywood scenes, um, the subway, the King's visit, I thought was quite um, was good when they were just talking man to man. Um, uh, when uh, Miss Leighton is learning about Calais um, and tells him that um, basically her brother didn't make it. And just the camera lingers on her. You know, she's not crying. She's not um, just very stoic. And, and she's embodying this uh, stiff upper lipness of the British. Um, and it, it really lingers for a long time. And it's like, I, I, I felt the emotion of that moment. Um, yeah, I liked, I liked that scene. And, and I liked how, and this speaks to what you were saying about the classism, how... Winston, how Winston just sort of stared at her for a while, you know, when she was reporting this. And she, you know, like he was connecting with her, but he wasn't going to do it in words. Yeah. And then she almost irreverently said, like, what? <laughs> like, what are you staring at? She didn't exactly say that, but that was her demeanor. And I thought that was very good. I thought that was good. Um, so what? There, and also there was just one scene that I thought was so funny. Um, it just went by in a second where when Churchill comes in to um, and he kisses the, the king's hand and he and the king turns around and wipes it on his back. Did you <laughs> notice that? So it's like, uh, it's like, yeah. I, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, well, and how he backs germaphobe, out. I'm sure you would have appreciated that. <laughs> how he backs out of the room, but you can tell he really didn't want to back yeah. out. <laughs> You know, he might, he was worried maybe about falling over. He just wanted to do what normal people do, which was you turn around and exit <laughs> the room. <laughs> that must be so weird. I mean, you have, I'm sure you haven't watched The Crown, but you see this scene all the time where prime minister after prime minister comes in and sees uh, 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 Elizabeth, and they're all, it's always awkward. Um, best and worst impersonations of a historical figure. 
I mean, you already mentioned Gary Oldman, so that's right. right. And then I think the Lord, Lord Halifax. I don't really know what the historical figures are supposed to look and sound right. like, except Chamberlain. Right. And that's an easy one. Yeah. Um, and um, but I thought I thought Stephen Delane as Lord Halifax was really good in terms of acting. Um, I don't really have any worse ones because I don't know enough about right. how they're supposed to look. Well, let's talk. I mean, let's talk about Gary Oldman for a second, because um, he really was good, and um, and he won the Academy Award, and it was a slam dunk that year. Everyone knew he was going to get it, um, and um, you know, he had to put on all that makeup, and supposedly he got nicotine poisoning from all that cigar, all those cigars. Um, I, you know, I barely knew who he was before um, uh, before this, and. Um, you know, if you go and look at uh, his Wikipedia page, it says he's one of the highest grossing actors of all time. Um, and that's because he played um, Inspector Gordon in three Batman movies. And he played Sirius Black, a major character in four Harry Potter movies. And as you mentioned, he was in he was Lee Harvey Oswald. And he's just been in a ton of movies. So he's one of these British actors that is always working you know in a million movies that we've never heard of and playing in plays and stuff but um but i would never in a million years recognize him on the street right i i absolutely i don't know i have no idea celebrity at least in america right this is a whole and, and lily james who i know you don't know um i assume you don't know uh no. played miss layton um she was famous for being uh the cousin on downton abbey um she was the girlfriend i i assume you saw this movie in uh yesterday that beatles movie oh yeah uh, yeah so she she was the the uh girlfriend there she was in mamma mia i i i don't know miss layton at all um but she i'm assuming that she was older and not quite as pretty as lily james um i also agree with you um that uh well I, I think that the guy that played chamberlain is was good um and i thought the king was the guy that played the king was was very good too um you know that george the sixth has been portrayed by a bunch of different people and um yeah uh colin firth you know uh played him in uh the king's speech and didn't look at all like him he actually looks like the photos you see of of, of the king um and um i I know you don't like the, the scenes with Churchill's wife, but I thought Kristen Scott Thomas, uh, who plays her, was pretty good. Uh, was it really looked like her at least. Um, she was in Four Weddings and a Funeral. She's another one of these British actresses that that is over there and just is in a million a million things. Um, uh, now I did like. Um, I, I I don't know um, anything about. Um, uh, uh, Halifax, um, but I thought that he was he he was probably pretty good. Um, uh, you know, he was certainly an affecting guy. He's he looks like um, not a very he was like smirking the entire time, um, but uh, very dour person. He's he's pretty interesting character. I went and looked up some because I I've heard about him all this time. Um, He's a he's another Halifax himself is an interesting figure, uh, typically British, you know, um, and it just goes to show you how um, William Manchester called uh, the, the, these guys an oligarchy. And it's true. I mean, Halifax was a lord. Uh, he was he actually was the fourth son and his three brothers died. Um, so he became um uh, but his real name is Edward Wood, but you know, <laughs> Edward, I mean, could there be a more dull name, but, um, right. but uh, he gets called Halifax. Um, he was, and, but all these guys, they went to college together. They went to element, you know, they went to Eton together. Her Churchill's father was, uh, Churchill's father and Chamberlain's father were enemies or political enemies, um, in the Gladstone, you know, when Gladstone and Disraeli were prime minister, I mean, so this goes down generation after generation of, um, so it's, it's kind of interesting, but I, I thought, um, and the reason is, uh, that, that 
and I didn't realize this until I looked it up, you know, uh, Halifax is never down there with Ch- with Chamberlain, right? He's never sitting next to him. That's because he's in the House of Lords. He can't be down in the Commons. And that's one of the reasons he didn't want to become, um, he didn't want to become um, Prime Minister is because usually the Prime Minister is the leader of the opposition party, or the leader of the party in, in the Commons. So, I mean, I, I'm sure they could have gotten around that technically, but um anyway yeah i thought um, again i think that halifax was a good foil yeah and not not a dumb idiot foil right smart enough to make the debate you know give the debate some weight and some realism and again i would just point out and i'm not look i'm on churchill's side on this um absolutely but the best argument I heard for not, you know, for stringing Germany along and pretending to negotiate. Right. Britain was not ready to fight a war yet. They were trying to buy time. But that a lot of things were being done. The country was rearming before Churchill ever set foot in number 10. Um, a peacetime draft had been instituted. Again, under Chamberlain. You know, that's a big step. And it was a big step in the United States. Uh, when that was done in the in the late 30s. Um, so um, it's not all black and white, except in the big picture, it's very clear who was right and who was wrong. Right, right. Uh, fun fact about uh, Lord Feff, uh, about Lord Feff Halifax is that um, his great-grandfather was uh, Earl Grey, um, who was famous for tea, and uh, he was also a prime minister. So uh, Halifax is the was the great grandson of a, of a prime minister. Um, okay, so if you were a history teacher in high school, would you assign this movie to your class? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that a lot of the kids probably be bored. Yeah, you know the thing Even about the I is- it very much. I would warn the students about, you know, to what a Hollywood depiction is all about. Um, but it was not, there was not a lot of great location shots. And as we mentioned, big battlefield scenes and action. But yes, yeah, I would. I would recommend it too. And and it, 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 they might not, un, they, I agree with you actually, that they might be bored because um you have to have a certain understanding of how the British government works because there's a lot of political back and forth. And I kind of complained that it was dumbed down, but it probably wasn't dumbed down enough for high school students. Cause there's a lot like, you're right. Like war cabinet and, you know, the sub cab did. And why are they yelling at each other in the co- commons like that? And um, so, yeah, but I, I would, I would, I would do it. So if you're a history Professor, uh, what grade would you give the movie? A minus. Uh, okay, agreed. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Very good movie. Um, a must see for anyone interested in this era and this period and in Churchill. Um, not without some flaws. Have you seen um, a lot of Churchill stuff on on screen before? Uh, no, I haven't really. Um, I've read a lot um, tangentially about Churchill in all the books I've been reading about American presidents of the era and 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 the generals of World War II and such. Well, he's been played by quite a few. I mean, he's a big character. I mean, he's a little bit like um, another president we'll talk about, Richard Nixon, um, played by a lot of different... um, characters um a lot of different actors john lithgow lithgow played him in the crown robert hardy in the wilderness years albert finney in the gathering storm um brian gleason in into the storm so i mean it goes on and on and on because this is he's a very dramatic it's easy to you know it's very so easy to to um to um character uh, to imitate him you know because he's got these big big gestures and big ways of talking and so all right so before we close out um 
have any recommendations of uh, anything related to uh, the movie or presidents in general? Well, I would I mentioned two books that I've read and um, I can't say I've read, you know, in recent weeks, but in recent months that I would mention. Um, uh, the first is, you know, as you know, I'm a big fan of Eisenhower. Um, I wish he could run for president in 2024. He would be about in the same age group as the candidates that have <laughs> run so far. Um, but um there's a lot of books about Eisenhower, some focusing on just his presidency, um, but one that covers the full sweep of his experiences in leadership in World War II and his presidency is Gene Edward Smith's Eisenhower in War and Peace. If somebody's looking to read a, a Jack of All Trades biography of Eisenhower, uh, that would be one I'd recommend. And there's a lot about his interactions and relationship with Churchill and with Roosevelt and between Roosevelt and Churchill and uh, the decisions uh, regarding uh, D-Day and how Churchill played into that and the delaying tactics, if you will. Um, so that would be one. And the second one would be the first volume of a two-volume biography of JFK. The second volume isn't out yet. I'm anxiously looking forward to it, but it's called JFK Coming of Age in the American Century. And it's by um, Frederick um, Logeval. I think I'm pronouncing that right. L as in Larry, O-G-E-V-A-L. And it covers JFK from birth, really before birth, because it gets into the family history, Yeah, um, up to 1956, his failed effort to become the vice presidential nominee. And there is a lot in there about Ambassador Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, his father, uh, his relationship with the British politicians, because he was ambassador to the court of St. James. JFK, a young JFK was over there. He was the only Kennedy that liked Churchill and didn't like Chamberlain. And, um, you know, Joe Sr. and Jr. were basically appeasers at best. Mm -hmm. at best. And, um, and Kennedy, uh, JFK, as a, as a young, as a student, uh, toured Nazi Germany, the opening days of the Nazis, I was in on the scene during all of these debates um, before uh, his father got recalled um, back home in some kind of disgrace. And so I really recommend that, not only because of all the insights about JFK, but also about because what we've talked about today. Okay. It's not a fawning biography. It's not a love feast like so many of the JFK books are. Um, it's warts and all, but it's not a scandal sheet either. It's, okay. a, it's a good middle, middle of the road depiction. Um. I uh, would recommend the Churchill biography, The Last Lion by William Manchester. Um, you remember William Manchester? The first time we ever heard about William Manchester, when he wrote that book about the presidential JFK's pres assassination, it was a huge scandal because Jackie was upset because he'd included a bunch of stuff in there that she didn't think was appropriate. Well, it was graphic, graphic depictions of the top of the president's head being blown off yeah, and yeah. things like that. And it began as an authorized biography. Right. And ended up in, in court. Yeah. Um, anyway, he's actually, um, he wrote, he's written uh, this multi-volume uh, biography of, of uh, Churchill, which is, I mean, he's an American, I think. Um, and the church, the biography is great. Um, and I'm just going to read from an, the penultimate paragraph. Um so it says the appeasers had been powerful. They had controlled the times and the BBC. They had been largely drawn from the upper classes and their betrayal of England's greatness would be neither forgiven nor forgotten by those who gulled by the mystique of England's class system had believed in it as Englishmen had believed for generations that public school boys governed best. The appeasers destroyed oligarchic rule, which though levelers may protest 
had been governed well, if ever men betrayed their class, these were they. So it's like very vivid writing. And, you know, and again, this is where I got a little bit of the detail about all the shenanigans that were going on before um, Churchill, uh, before uh, the Chamberlain government fell. Um, but I would, uh, I would, uh, anyone's interested in, in Churchill, that's what I would recommend. Yeah, I've heard of that. And now you've now gotten me interested. I think I will, as soon as I finish the, yeah, there it is. Whoops. As soon as I finish the, um, I'm on volume three now of the three volume Thatcher authorized biography. Okay. Um, well, Churchill is-, is probably the most amazing figure. I mean, he might not be the most important. We can argue about who was more important. Like you could make the case that Lenin was the most important figure of the 20th century, but um, he's the, really the most amazing figure who dominated really the first half because uh, he was always there he's always like nixon you know nixon was always there for decades and decades and decades and um um and then he finally became prime minister um and he had so many exploits what yeah, he even basically defined and gave words to the cold war the iron curtain right right uh, right going up to the right even when he wasn't prime minister uh, and then he was defeated immediately after the war Right. Go figure. Um, thanks for... for lately is the, <laughs> what have you done for me lately is the motto of, the, of democracy. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for winning the war. Take a, take a hike. All right. Um, well, thanks, Jim. Um, and we will uh, we'll be back next time with another fascinating movie about... Uh, the next time we'll be talking about the American presidents. So bye-bye. All right. Take care.